You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. This episode of Uncorking a Story is sponsored by Michael Carlin's latest novel, The Ruin of Souls. If you like books about gladiators, then this isn't the book for you. But if you can appreciate a good mystery, jaw-dropping plot twists, and a generous pour of espionage, then The Ruin of Souls should be on your summer reading list. You can buy The Ruin of Souls in ebook or paperback format wherever books are sold online. Enjoy the show. Well, hello, and welcome to Uncorking Story, where we dig into the stories behind the stories. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and today, wow, am I excited to share with you my conversation with Andrea Bartz about her third novel, We Were Never Here. But uh, more on that in a moment. When Andy and I were talking, and yes, I said Andy, uh, because by now we're we're simply old friends, I, I got the impression that she is someone who likes to turn conventions on their heads. And that really, really resonated with me, you know, as a kid and, and of course, even now. But I was never somebody who liked or or bought, you know, the the rationale. Well, that's just the way it is. You know, I, I didn't like that attitude towards towards life. And and it was simply it's because, well, what what if that, okay, that's the way it is? But but is that the way it should be? You know, can't can't something be improved? And if you don't allow yourself to have room for improvement in, in your life, I think you're, you're really, you know, placing a big limit on your life. But, you know, I remember being a kid and, you know, as a kid in the early eighties, um, I was really drawn to, to early rap music, you know, and to, to paint a picture for you, I'm a, right now I'm a 46 year old white guy from the suburbs. And, uh, then I was, I was probably like a nine or 10 year old white kid from the suburbs. And, you know, that, um, you know, that, uh, let's just say that we were not the target audience for that, that type of music, but something about it really spoke to me. Um, I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the rhyming, the beat, the rhythm, the sampling. I thought it was, uh, I thought it was great. Um, and the first time I heard run DMC, I was blown away because, you know, they were the first you know, people, the first group, uh, in, in my memory that really fused rap music with rock music. And, you know, sure you had, you know, you had people sampling, you know, bits and riffs from, from old rock songs. Um, but, but, you know, a lot of, a lot of the early rap was sampling, you know, (laughs) chic, you know, (laughs) I think everybody sampled, (laughs) sampled that, um, back in the day, but this was hard rock. You know, they were, they were, they were, they were fusing hard rock and, and rap. And then later on, you know, Anthrax had a collaboration with public enemy, um, which, uh, which really blew me away. Cause that was taking this, this new genre that I was into, which was like thrash metal and, and hardcore rap music. 
And then later on, there was Kid Rock who came around. There was Limp Bizkit, you know, a whole, a whole bunch of other artists who, who challenged musical conventions in the 90s and 2000s. And, you know, that's the stuff I was always drawn to, you know, and um, not everyone understood it, but but I thought it was cool. So I like this notion of challenging conventions, you know, and it didn't end with my taste in music. You know, I've taken that approach, you know, the, this this passion for challenging conventions in, in, into my business life as well. You know, in my day job, I, I work as an interviewer in the market research industry and historically and, and by historically I meant pre pre covid. You know, our interviews are always done in person for the most part, you know, uh, for the most part, uh, interviews were done in person. And, and, and over 10 years ago, I started really pushing clients to move to interviewing by webcam, you know, online, you know, in certain circumstances, it just made more sense. And I'm not going to bore you with what those circumstances are because this is not a marketing or business podcast, but, but what surprised me was that even though I was putting a proposition in front of clients that that would save them money and give them the opportunity to interview a more geographically, you know, dispersed group of people. There was a lot of resistance to doing it. You know, there was a resided, a lot of resistance to making that change. And, and I kept hearing, well, we've never done it that way before. And that used to just like get under my skin. You know, at the time I had this saying that I would throw back at them. I would say, Hey, look, if you've always done, if you always do what you've always done, You'll always get what you always got. And sometime, sometimes that worked, you know, and sometimes it didn't. But the point is, I was, I was frustrated because I wanted them to consider making a change and challenging the conventions that they were used to. Um, now, of course, with, uh, with the pandemic, um, it forced a lot of people to, to doing that kind of work online. And uh, <laughs> now, I'm, now I'm pushing clients to travel again. Because I, uh, I miss, I miss traveling. I miss going to see people in person, but, uh, that that's enough uh, about that. Um, Andrea Bartz, however, is not afraid to challenge conventions and she addresses them uh, head on, uh, specifically in uh, while, I'm sorry, <laughs> we were never here. And, and while that book is a work of fiction, the themes that run underneath that story are very real. And I could tell you what those themes are, but I'm not going to do that because I'm going to let Andy tell you what those themes are uh, because it's her story to tell. So without any more pontification from yours truly, here is my conversation with the uh, immensely talented Andrea Arts. Great. So I am currently in Brooklyn, my home of 13 plus years, um, but I'm originally from the Milwaukee area. So I grew up in the suburbs of Milwaukee. I went to school uh, outside of Chicago at Northwestern. And then immediately after graduation, I moved out to New York to work in magazines. And then I had a career as a magazine editor for years uh, while sort of starting towards the end of it to work on fiction in my free time. And the magazines that I worked at kept folding while I worked there. It's a really, really exciting industry in that sense. Um, And so I moved over to the much more stable uh, world of book publishing. (laughs) And um, my first book came out in 2019. It was called The Lost Night. Um, My second, my sophomore thriller came out in 2010, excuse me, in 2020. In March 2020, there was nothing else going on that month. That was called The Herd. 
And my new book is coming out August 3rd. It's called We Were Never Here. And it's my uh, favorite book I've written yet. Well, very good. I, I, I imagine it would be. But uh, I and I want to dig into all those experiences. But when you were younger, did you know that you always wanted to, to sort of be in the publishing field? Or did, did you have like a different dream? I'm thinking like, you know, growing up. Did you always say to yourself, hey, I want to write for a living or did, did you have some other other plans at the time? Well, like every kid, I went through the phase where I wanted to be a marine biologist. I thought I was going to be a teacher at one point. I mean, I tried on a lot of hats because when you're a kid, that's that's just, you know, how you're experiencing things. But I always loved books and I was always writing stories and making my own little books. Uh, and so even when I was little, when, um, I recently found like a diary from when I was probably nine or 10 and, and there was a questionnaire at the beginning that was like best friend, favorite song, where I live, all those things. And when it said like what I want to be when I grow up, I wrote author. So I'd actually kind of forgotten about that because I discovered magazine journalism in college and I absolutely loved it. And I loved working in that field. So for a while, it just felt like this is, this is the calling, this is the new dream. And this is what I want to do with the rest of my life. Um, and like I said, the, the fiction writing sort of became a little side project to, to amuse myself. And now is what I'm doing full time. <laughs> but I definitely always just loved books and writing and storytelling. And so I think pretty much all my career has been centered around that. You know, it's so interesting when I when I talk to authors, um, that's one of the, the most common things people tell me is that they always had an interest in reading um, just starting early off, just being like avid readers. And I think that's, it's almost like the criteria, right. For, for, for becoming a good writer is you have to be a good reader first. Yeah. If you don't really love books, I think it'd be pretty weird to devote years of your life to writing, publishing and promoting your own. So right. it makes sense. It's sort of a closed, sort of a closed loop, a closed ecosystem of just book lovers. Yeah. So you were working in, in magazine journalism, uh, during a period of time when, when magazines were not exactly thriving. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you could say that. I mean, I graduated in June 2008. So once again, nothing else happening that month. Definitely not a really exciting time. <laughs> of course not. Um, and so I started working at Condé Nast that same month. And uh, within two months, there was, you know, the huge crash and the bailout and the hiring freeze and all sorts of scary stuff. So I started in a really precipitous time. Um, which is ironic because when I was interning at magazines as a college student, it was still sort of the very last days of the glory days. So I, you know, as a 20 year old wide eyed intern got to see, wow, editors in chief have town cars and a clothing budget and everything is so glamorous. And there's these beautiful PR parties and, and, you know, it all looks so glamorous and, and exciting. And, and to a large extent, it still was, I still did really enjoy a lot about the field while it was in it. But, um, but yeah, I started out in scary times and, um, worked at different magazines that uh, the vast majority of them, even though they're still household names, things like Glamour, um, South, uh, Martha Stewart, like a lot of them are no longer in print. They're online only. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it was, it was just upsetting, you know, working on these products we were really excited about and really proud of um, and watching them disappear. And that was sort of part of why I wanted to seriously pursue this, 
book I'd been kind of writing in my free time, it was like, here's one thing that is mine and that no one can take away from me. Um, and yeah, that sort of has, has continued. I mean, of course I have a publisher, I have an agent. They feel like, they feel like bosses in a sense, but I am still sort of the, the driver of that bus. Right. And it's right. very different from being at magazines and just wondering when, <laughs> when the ax is going to come down. Well, I remember, I mean, I, I started my professional career uh, over a decade before you did in, in, um, maybe almost two decades in 96. And I, I started at, at an advertising agency in the media department. And it was just so fascinating to see the world of print publishing just get turned around, you know, primarily due to the impact of interactive media. But I remember as a young media planner making like zero dollars in New York City, it was like you know, the, the perks of the job were going to the, the on the Forbes yacht, you know, like they had yes. a yacht that you would go and party on and. And, you know, whether it's Sports Illustrated or, or whoever else, you know, People magazine, um, you know, that was that was like the high life almost. And then and then interactive kind of comes along and, and everything, everything kind of changes. Yeah, it was there was always this real irony to making like twenty seven thousand dollars a year. But being on a yacht with an open bar with like the tours playing for free for you. Right, right. <laughs> it was a different, it was a weird era with a lot of uh, contradictions within it. Well, if you want to, if you want to talk a real weird era, like the, the era that followed. So I jumped ship and I went into interactive um, marketing after that. And just the launch parties of like dot coms that just should never, you know, like caskets.com. I'm totally making that up, but it's like a company like that could get funded like overnight for what you're buying caskets on a website. Like I don't, it was just wild, but of course that, that bubble burst too. Um, right. Well, tell me, so it sounded like you started your first one, your first novel as, as a side, as a side project. So t- tell me about, you know, that, th- that journey and, and, and finding an agent for that and getting representation and getting it published. Um, tell me a little bit more about that. Absolutely. So I started working on what eventually became The Lost Night, my debut, back in 2014. I was still a magazine editor, but I had friends who'd written books. It was starting to see more, you know, in the magazine industry, you'd sort of meet more people who were authors. Um, And as a book lover, I was sort of remembering how much I wanted to be doing that as a kid. And I thought, if I can just stick with an idea, um, maybe it could be something. And so I participated in... NaNoWriMo National Novel Writing Month in November 2014. Uh, I think going into it, I had about 10,000 words. And then I completed NaNoWriMo, which is the goal of uh, writing 50,000 words. So I finished it and I had 60K words. And I was like, my God, I'm nearly there. I can't go back now. I have to keep working on this and finish it. Little did I know that I the, the few months of writing it were nothing compared to the many months of revising it to get it in into shape, into some actually coherent, um, you know, make it a coherent manuscript. So I worked really hard on it for the following year and started querying agents in uh, fall of 2016. Is that right? Yes. Querying agents. So about two years of work of additional work and I queried agents in fall of 2016. I can remember it because it was right in the middle of the election, always something exciting happening when I'm trying to have major life, uh, life events. And, um, I just queried cold queries via, um, you know, the slush pile and was very fortunate to get several offers of representation and signed with an agent 
did a quick revision with her and then she went out to publishers. And at this point I was once again cocky um, because I had gotten an agent very quickly. I'd gotten multiple offers and she went out and um, you know, the last night is a, um, you know, female driven character driven thriller whodunit with an unreliable female narrator. And it's just a very um, bloated field And, um, so we got, we just racked up a whole bunch of rejections and two of the editors that my agent had submitted to said, uh, I can't buy it as is, but if the author is willing to do revisions on her own, I'll look at it again. Um, they did what are called revise and resubmit requests, which are really scary because you can do all this work and still not get an offer. And it's pretty unusual to have two editors saying that it's like, how do I balance both of their notes? And, you know, what if they both say no after this? Um, so that was sort of my humbling moment. And I worked, I dug really deep and worked really hard for a few more months. And um, once we resubmitted one of those editors um, at, at Random House made an offer pretty quickly. And now she has been my editor um, for, for all of my books since. So um, yeah, we, we signed the book contract in, July 2017 and the first one came out in February 2019 that was the last night um and then just over a year later in March is when my my second whodunit came out yeah uh, it'll be this year so that sounds like a much faster process the second time around yes the second time was actually unbelievably fast because we didn't really agree on nobody really wanted to talk about my next book idea until the last night was sort of sent off to production, like totally taken care of, wrapped up on our end, going to go off to the copy editors. Um, So that was pretty late in the process. And I came back, I had some ideas and they were wrong and bad. And it took a while to get the no's on them that I needed. And so it took us a while to finally settle on the idea for The Herd, um, which is a whodunit that's set in an elite, bougie, all-female co-working space. Um, and it was a killer hook that we sort of came up with together, but when we finally agreed upon it, my agent and editor were like, okay, great. Well, we want this to come out a year after the last night, which is coming out in two seconds. And I was like, you know, did some, did some math in my head. And I was like, what? Um, so I ended up writing the first draft in four months, which was insane. Um, and I never want to do that again, but somehow it happened. And, um, yeah, since then I've managed to like demand more writing time for myself because that was a, a dark period. But yes, I went from all the time in the world to four months to now I sort of ask for a reasonable amount of time that I will actually need to complete a manuscript. Well, yeah, now you, you get the leverage now because you have, you know, with, you know, previously two hits under your belt, then, you know, you have a little bit more to, to kind of go back to them with. But yeah, I just keep saying, like, if you want this to be good, I'm going to need more time. Like, right. I can give you a bad book. <laughs> right. Right. And then it's it's notes and revisions and and kind mm-hmm. of all, all that again. So you're really looking out for them. You know, Andy is, is kind exactly. of what you're I mean, it's not their names on the front of the book. OK, <laughs> <laughs> it's your name. Um. So, but just the, the, you know, being able to find an agent so quickly for that first one, I mean, that's where most, you know, most authors I talk to, um, you know, say that, that, that's almost the hardest part, um, for, I mean, in addition to, of course, writing it and making sure it's good and all that, but it's really finding somebody who's willing to, to take a chance on you as a relatively unknown person. Um, but so you kind of get through that hoop, um, 
But, you know, since so many people who listen to this are aspiring authors themselves, I'm curious if you have any words of advice for, you know, those those sort of first time authors in terms of, you know, how how to even find an agent and and even get get that first step. Yeah, no, I agree. It's a really tough spot. I have fantastically talented friends who have been querying for sometimes years. Um, Sometimes they query and query on one project, give up, and then the next project they end up with four offers um, and and it happens really quickly. So um, definitely do not give up and do not take the uh, length of time that it takes you to to find the right agent as any indication of future success. I don't think there's much of a correlation. You absolutely can, you know, really sign with a perfect agent and get perfect deal for you, even if it has been a while. Um, But my advice, I think a lot of people will take sort of the like crop dusting approach and they, um, just query tons and tons of people thinking the more the merrier, thinking their odds are better if they increase the number of agents they're querying. And I actually think that's a mistake. I think um, it's sort of a waste of the agent's time and it's a waste of your time. And I think the best thing to do before you send out a single query or stop now and, and you know maybe this can be your next round is just to stop and educate yourself. I signed up for... Um, for Publishers Lunch, Publishers Weekly, Publishers Marketplace has the paid um, has the you know paid part of it where you can look up deal makers. Um, I did a deep dive into um, into comps into books that I thought were similar to mine, and I looked up who was representing them. Are they looking for things right now? What exactly are they looking for? Um, I used Manuscript Wishlist, which is both uh, hashtag MSWL and um, it's kind of aggregated in I think a blog, um, and just really looked for keywords like, um, I thought my book had similarities with the girl on the train and gone girl. And so I thought, so I looked for who was using those keywords to say, I'm looking for the next X, Y, and Z. Um, and I just really took the time to make sure that every single agent I was querying, I could articulate why I thought they would be a great agent to represent it which I think is really important. Um, And then I worked really long and really hard on the query letter. I I have also noticed that sometimes people want to hurry past that step and just let the manuscript speak for itself. Here's the thing, it won't, it doesn't. These agents get hundreds of queries a day. They don't have time to just read your whole book. They might not even read the first few pages. You need to hook them with the query letter. So the query letter is every bit as important as your manuscript. Um, And I, you know, I wrote it, I sent it to people. I had so many people weigh in on it and I edited it. I crunched it down and down and down. I think a lot are way too long. They should be 300 words max, which is so hard, but like do not hit send on a single query until you are convinced that your query letter is absolutely as perfect as it could be. I think that's so important. And I know you're tired and I know you're impatient to get it out, but like that is, this is your one shot at knocking at the front door and they will only open that door once because if an agent says no, generally they are saying no for their entire agency. Um, so I just think really doing the work up front and, um, you know, making sure that they're a perfect, a perfect agent for you and having a really great query letter is key. And I think a lot of people also mistakenly, they're really surprised that I didn't have a personal connection. They are working really hard on, um, you know, networking and meeting people at conferences. And I guess I won't say that it's useless. I think it can help to maybe get your query read more quickly, sort of moved up on the slush pile. 
But the only thing that agent cares about is can they sell this book? That's what they're there to, to manage. And, and do they see you as having a career that will be, you know, mutually beneficial if they can make money off of you, basically? Um, and so I just think it's a mistake to think that your schmoozing is going to get yourself an agent. It's just about this book. Can they sell it? doesn't even matter if they love it. They can love it and say, I just don't think I can sell it. And that'll be a no as well. So like understand where it's going to fit into the market. That should be part of your query letter. Make sure you have the exact, you've zeroed in on the exact right agents for it and um, make sure that query letter is just perfection. And that's, I, I, I think most people, I, most successful writers I know did find their agents through the slush pile. So it absolutely can happen. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I know, I know it can be such a disheartening process for, for so many people and, you know, people joke that, you know, they could sort of wallpaper their wall with the, the you know, the form rejection letters that they get from yes, the query process. I know. I know it is, it is horrible. And if you need to take a break for your mental health, do that and step back. But like, just do not lose hope. I know I can think right off the bat of so many stories of people who were rejected, 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 and then signed with, they got that one. Yes. All it takes is yes. And then they ended up with like a six figure publishing deal. So just, don't give up, but do take a look at like, if you are getting so, so many rejections, is there anything consistent you can learn from it? Um, are you targeting the wrong kind of person? Is your query, is something in your query letter not, not sticking or not landing? Is something in your opening pages not as strong as it could be? Um, and just, yeah, be, my therapist always says, be curious, not furious. You know, don't, don't take it personally. It's not personal. Don't. Um, be mad that people are saying no and think they're all idiots. Just be curious. What can I learn from this and how can I keep going and, and take a mental health break in the middle if you need to. I am totally going to steal that phrase. Be curious, not furious. It applies to a lot of situations. No, I know. I absolutely be certainly be on this. But um, well, let's talk about uh, We Were Never Here. So, so give me a little bit of an overview of, of this work and, and sort of how this story came to you and, and why this is a, a, a sort of a, a story for the, the present day that we're living in. Yeah. So I had the idea for We Were Never Here when I was on vacation myself. It's sort of a, a, a travel thriller, a globetrotting thriller. I was on vacation myself with uh, a good friend and the two of us, uh, a female friend, and the two of us went to Chile's Elki Valley in the Andes Mountains. And we sort of didn't pay enough attention when we were booking because the town that we wound up in was just completely dead. There was just nothing going on. Most of the restaurants were closed. There were a few things you could do. We went stargazing. We had every restaurant that we went to, we had to ourselves, but it was very quiet. And so on the very first day, we sort of bumped into and immediately befriended the one other tourist who, like us, <laughs> ended up there. And he was this really lovely Australian guy named Stephen. And he was so great. The three of us were just pretty much instantly inseparable. It's one of those travel things where you meet someone and you're just instantly all best friends. It's like you've known each other forever. And he was actually so not creepy and not scary and just delightful and trustworthy and wonderful that we immediately had a running gag about how he was just biding his time until he could like kill us and steal our money. <laughs> that just immediately became something we could all joke about because he was so great. And um, on the last night, all, you know, the, the bars closed early. So we had picked up a bunch of Chilean wine from a wine shop and we're hanging out in uh, the suite that my, my friend Jennifer and I uh, had booked. And we were just hanging out, drinking wine. Someone made a joke again about how he was just biding his time. 
And because my brain works like this as a thriller writer, I said, you know, Stephen, you've known us exactly as long as we've known you. And you actually didn't watch me open and pour your wine in the other room. So what makes you so convinced that like, we should be afraid of you? And a long silence ensued. And he kind of said, yeah, I guess, I guess I don't know that. Um, and luckily everyone's still alive, but it did give me this idea for a book in which, um, you know, it, it made me curious why there's such an assumption that women are always the ones who need to be afraid of men and women are always going to be the victims of violence. It's just assumed. Um, and so I thought, what might be a scenario be where two women are traveling together and they are the perpetrators of violence? So that is a long lead up to me explaining that We Were Never Here is about two globe-trotting best friends who, while they're on vacation in Chile, um, wind up killing a backpacker in self-defense and um, on account of not wanting to end up as foreigners in jail you know, in a foreign country, they bury the body and... and fly home, um, which just sort of leaves them alone with uh, questions about what they did, um, if it really went down the way that they're, you know, sort of starts to break up their friendship, stretch their friendship to the limit while the walls are closing in on them uh, on their own cover up. So it's it's not a whodunit. You know whodunit from the very first chapter. It starts with this murder. Um, but it was a lot of fun for me to um, sort of simultaneously explore this, this story of a very, very complex and tight female friendship, um, but also to explore these broader themes of um, sort of the way that violence is so casually and naturally heaped on women um, that we don't even allow, we don't even entertain the possibility that women could uh, dish it back. Right. So th- there's your, there's your sort of new approach to uh, sort of challenging the conventions of, of the genre, if you will. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, it's um, t- turning on its head the idea that um, women need to always, especially female travelers, my God, female travelers need to be so afraid of men everywhere they go. <laughs> That's right. So when you're describing like how you set it up and it, that it's not a whodunit, you know, you know, who does, you know, does the deed in the, in the first chapter. It reminds me, I don't know if you ever watched Columbo, but mm-hmm. I'm, I'm like addicted to Columbo. And that's yeah, exactly not. how it is. Should, okay, I should watch that. I actually, yeah, it really took me down this new path of like, what do thrillers look like when they're not mysteries? Yeah. And um, it's, there's still a lot of fun to be had. Yeah, it's it's almost like the, the fun is sort of watching it unravel and, and how, you know, somebody puts the pieces together. It's um, exactly. But yeah. I would I would recommend with the earlier seasons, because the later ones were uh you know, they were very it, I think the show started in the very early 70s or even late 60s for the pilot. But as they got into the 80s, it just was not. Um, let's just it's say let's just say that like, every story p- perhaps had been told by then. Let's just say that. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's a very long time to sustain. I only had to sustain it for 300 pages, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So what you know, as, as you've been sort of writing more fiction, kind of going from um, sort of print journalism, magazine journalism to the, to the world of fiction. What have you learned about yourself during, during, um, that process? That's a great question. I, I definitely learned a lot about like what stories I want to tell and what, um, 
sort of issues I want to bring into the forefront. Um, and, you know, as a magazine editor, I always worked in women's service. So things like glamour and self and um, sort of, sort of like the self-help of, of magazines and helping women hopefully improve their lives. Um, none of the issues that I was covering were necessarily personal or if there was a personal connection, it, that didn't matter because I could talk about it in a much more general, you know, let's see what experts say about it. Let's see how, how other real women, we call them real women versus celebrities and experts, which is absurd. Um, let's see how other people, you know, feel about their experiences. Um, but with fiction, I think all fiction is a little bit autobiographical, not because any of the details are necessarily real to my life. I have not killed anyone in, in the Andes mountains. Um, not because the characters are necessarily me, but because, um, for me to sustain interest in a story, it has to be wrestling with tension and themes that I find interesting and that I, that make me a little bit uncomfortable. Um, so, you know, to give, I could probably give examples for all my books for the lost night. It's about a woman who, um, can't remember exactly what happened the night that her best friend allegedly killed herself. Um, and as she starts to dig back into it, she begins to wonder, she begins to question if she herself was involved. Um, and that sort of grew out of that feeling from binge drinking, which I was doing a lot more of in my early twenties, but you know, you wake up after binge drinking and whether or not anything went wrong the night before, you just have this feeling, you have this guilt and it's really creepy that you can't remember everything. And like, that's scary to be robbed of your own memories and to be left with this vague sense of like guilt and shame. Um, and so that was a feeling I wanted to like spin out into an entire book and explore. Um, and, you know, the herd is all of these like perfect seeming women that belong to this all-female co-working space, the herd, H-E-R, always in purple. And um, I wanted to explore sort of this professional competition and this sense of, um, you know, inadequacy and, and competition and, um, and jealousy and just this feeling of never stacking up to the women around you and the way that we judge ourselves much more harshly than I think other people and outsiders even judge us. Um, and I think that's so baked into our culture and, you know, internalized sexism and misogyny and existing in a, you know, patriarchal society. We like have all these ideas about, um, as women about success as a zero sum game and another woman's success being my, being my failure. Um, and these are really ugly things that like nobody wants me to talk about. And some people, hate that these issues come up in the books and just deem them unlikable and deem all the characters annoying because they're wrestling with this stuff. And like, we don't want to touch that. Um, but I feel strongly about these issues and want to talk about them. And then likewise, of course, for We Were Never Here, um, I was a travel writer for years after I stopped being a magazine editor. Um, so in addition to writing fiction, I was, I was traveling a lot. Um, most of it on my own. And I was just constantly hearing stuff I needed to do to keep myself safe. And wow, you're so brave. Or wow, I would never do that. I would never travel there alone. I would never let my daughter travel there alone. And just this sort of messaging that to me felt like a way to keep women's lives small, like stay home where you're safe. And that's how you keep yourself from being attacked. Well, wait a minute. Why, why is it my job to keep myself from being attacked? Why doesn't somebody talk to the attackers out there? Right. Um, and so in all these cases, I have these sort of 
quote unquote, unlikable ideas or, or, um, these sort of not, not pretty, not super socially acceptable or palatable or delightful, um, ideas that I want to explore. And so I, I do so in books, um, and hopefully that connects with some people and gets them to think about it in a new way, even as some people are just sort of turned off by it or grossed out by it and just think it's, it's gauche to be, you know, top putting these things out on the table. Right. So I think the fiction process for me, I mentioned how I had a lot of ideas that were wrong after the last night for what my next book should be. And my editor had to sort of help me home, home in on what is an Andrea Barks thriller. And so I think the learning process for me was like, what does it mean for, um, a thriller idea to be a topic I really want to explore and have something to say about. And for me, that really consistently comes back to what we think of as these like women's issues or feminist issues that um, I think are every bit as legitimate as, you know, the World War II fighter pilot thriller about the guy needing to escape from Nazis or whatever. Right. So right. I think so, I sort of learned, yeah, what my little, what my narrow lane is. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's interesting because you know, a lot of people think that fiction is just all make believe. And, and yeah, I mean, certainly while you're starting with a blank canvas and, and you're creating your own world, which is what I really love about fiction is, you, you know, you can sort of enter a world that doesn't exist and, and, and put yourself in it, but it's really not, you know, when people say, write what you know, you're really not basing necessarily characters on yourself or your personality traits. Although I've certainly been accused of, of doing that. Um, but it's really like exploring themes that are important to you. And so while the story is made up, the themes themselves are very much real. You know, they, they are and they're important to you and, and they're things that you can explore. And I think being able to explore them through characters gives you a little safety almost. You know, it gives you a little maybe a little bit of freedom to to kind of push the envelope a little bit more and, and um, you know, find maybe even find a new take on it because you're stepping out of yourself and putting yourself in someone else's shoes. And right. that could that could lead to some interesting insights. Yeah, absolutely. And like sort of pushing your character into uncomfortable positions that you hopefully won't find yourself in, but then playing out, what would I do in, well, what would I, if this, this character were me and I had those character traits do, um, and, you know, getting that, that helps you get the motivation, right. It helps you sort of carry the reader along on this character's journey. But, um, yeah, at the heart of it, you're also sort of playing out in my case, like really deep fears and, um, concerns and, and tensions and things I feel conflicted about. And there's, you know, cognitive dissonance around it. Like it's just a chance to really go deep on those things that feel uncomfortable to think about, but now someone else's, some, my, my fictional character is the one dealing with it. So that I can do, that's actually kind of fun. Right. And, and the world is certainly safer, especially if you're a backpacker, you know, with, <laughs> with this all being in fiction. It's exactly true. <laughs> so I know we, we talked a bit about, you know, the, the, your, your magazine, um, your magazine days, your, your days as a sort of a novelist, um, with the third book, uh, coming out, we were never here. I'm curious if, if you didn't write for a living, you know, if, if you had to choose another career, and I know this is sometimes a difficult question for people to answer, particularly if you are doing what you plan to do when you were, you know, nine year old, nine years old or something, according to an old journal, but, um, what would it be like? What, what would you, what could you see yourself doing if not this? 
it's always fun for me to think about like, what if I hadn't settled on writing right away? Because my immediate answer is, oh, maybe I'd be a screenwriter. Maybe I'd, you know, be a TV writer. Like I still, my brain wants to, you know, close in on this, this sort of narrow variations on a theme. Um, but there's also stuff I love doing. I don't know. I love, you can't tell from the wall behind me, but I love decorating. Maybe I'd be an interior designer. Maybe I'd be doing something else sort of artistic and like telling a story, quote unquote, in another way. But I think the most likely answer is that I would be doing something psychology related, um, possibly a therapist. I really liked psychology growing up. Um, one of my one of my magazine editor jobs was at Psychology Today. That was the one non-women's magazine. Um, I minored in it in school. I still, you know, really nerd out on, on psychology stuff, which I think is why I like writing psychological thrillers where um, so much of the conflict and the, the, the tension and stakes is really about um, motivation and character and psychology. Um, but... I just think being a therapist and just sitting and listening to like real human drama all day would be so incredibly fascinating. And, you know, living in New York city, one of my favorite things was just, you know, passively eavesdropping on the lives of people around me and someone on their phone in the cafe next to me, or somebody, you know, two people talking something out on the subway, something I've really missed during, uh, during quarantine and during the pandemic. Um, So I think being paid to, just listen to people's, uh, you know, inner worlds would be totally fascinating, which is sort of like the inverse of like making up people's inner worlds and telling that story, I guess. Yeah, but you need the you need those building blocks to understand kind of how people think, how decisions are made. And I mean, I even heard, heard, heard <laughs> I heard you use terms like cognitive dissonance, you know, during our conversation. And that's certainly a psychological term. Um, that was actually my first career was, was I was, uh, all set up to do a PhD in clinical psych. And, oh, then, wow. uh, and then I took a year off to, to work in advertising just to see what the real world was like. And then I, <laughs> I stumbled upon, um, these things called focus groups and, and just it's same thing as to like group therapy where you get people in a room and you're talking about things, but you're not talking about, you know, depression, you're talking about advertising or communications or products and, but people are still sharing about themselves. I'm like, wow, that's really interesting. And that guy probably gets paid a little bit more than, you know, the PhD who I was going to become. So then I I completely pivoted and, and went to a different direction. But I I do think a lot of writers have that inner psychologist in them. And I'm not even sure that that's that different. You were still trafficking in like behavioral economics, right? And like, you know, how, what attracts people to different things and how they interact with messaging and products. And, um, yeah, I think there's, I think to be a good writer, you kind of need a fascination with the human psyche and how, how humans think and why they do what they do and what makes them tick. So sort of makes sense. We all gravitate around that. Yeah. Well, it's, 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 I think wider than that, it's just having natural curiosity you know, just to explore something that's unknown and you know, what's more unknown than a story that hasn't been written yet. So, yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, yeah, I, I was recently telling someone how as a magazine editor, I would run these idea meetings. Um, originally, I would go to them. And then as I got higher up on the mass I would run these idea meetings. And the ideas that I would always assign weren't necessarily the ones. Sometimes you just love an idea and you're like, great, go. 
and everyone agrees it's a great idea. But what really excited me and interested me were the ideas where an editor would pitch it and then all this sort of debate would break out and people would have different thoughts on it. And some people thought it was a great idea to cover it. And some people thought it was a terrible idea. And the room would just sort of erupt in chaos. And there would be so much tension and people had such strong emotions about it. And that was always the minute that I would sort of like call time out and say, assign it, we're doing it because look how much, you know, excitement, even though a lot of it was negative, it created in this room, this, you know, ugly little meeting room. And I think something similar is happening with, with my books too, where there isn't a meeting room full of other people, but in my head, there'll be something that, you know, we're all like, writers are all magpies, right? We're intellectual magpies looking for things that catch our attention and, and shiny objects that seem interesting. Um, and so when I sort of snag on one of them, it just makes me feel all kinds of ways. And I don't know if it's good or bad. Uh, a perfect example is The Herd. I, I had the idea because I was a guest at, um, at The Wing, one of, you know, a, a real life. There's several off-female co-working spaces, but I, I was a guest at The Wing and I couldn't figure out if I liked it or not. And I thought, this is so weird. It's so beautiful and it smells nice. And everyone here is gorgeous and smart and perfect. But I also feel like I'm not good enough to fit in here. And why did I dress up and like try to, why am I trying to act so charming to fit in? And this is free from the male gaze. And yet I'm so concerned about how I look and am perceived. And it's supposed to be so inclusive and, you know, diverse and, and progressive. And yet it's naturally exclusive. And I just, and I still don't really know how I feel about it, but I did write 300 pages to um, sort of wrestle with that. And, and so I think it's a similar thing of like, where is there, you know, excitement or, or, or tension or drama? And like, how can I um, glom onto that and turn it into some sort of story? Yeah. I mean, you know, someone once told me that too much uh, agreement can kill a conversation. And if there's good, robust discussion and debate around something, that's when you know that something has legs, I think mm -hmm. anyway. And, and that and that other people like groups of people will get together you know, specifically you know, if, if it's a novel and talk about it. And that's that's kind of what you want is like to 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 get really rich debate out of something and, and see where kind of how how other people um you know, take it. And you know, there's no one answer to what is this book about? I mean, there's Absolutely. the intent, there's the intent that the author has, but if it's, if it's really done well, I think, you know, people can take it in, in kind of other directions and spur debate. And, and then of course, then other people will start reading it and see what they think. And, and that's, right. that's of course a good thing, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. All those different interpretations, they can be a little crazy making as the author going, no, that's not what I meant at all, but you got to just, you create this baby and you birth it and it's out in the world. So now it's the readers. Yeah. Well, what, I mean, if we, as, as we kind of wrap up here, Andy, I'm just curious <laughs> as to what, if you could whisper something into your younger self's ear, let's, let's, you know, pick an age in your mind, whether it's, you know, your, your 10 year old self, your teenage self, your, your, yourself who's starting off in her career. What would you, what would you kind of whisper into that younger Andy's ear? What kind of advice would you give that younger Andy? I think the advice would be, um, you know, nothing is going to pan out the way you thought, but it's actually going to be better than you were imagining. Um, you know, I've had some disappointments over the years. I had the same boyfriend in, in high school and college and 
when we broke up, I was, I was devastated and there went my, you know, poof went my sort of life plans. Uh, and then I got into magazines and I absolutely loved it. And I wanted to be an editor in chief by age 30 and I had such clear goals. And then, you know, poof, the, the rug got sort of pulled out from under me. Um, and, and so these different things that I sort of thought, thought I wanted slash thought I needed and just assumed were going to happen for me. The, you know, white picket fence and 2.5 kids and, and nine to five career that I was going to stay in. Well, more like nine to seven, but career that I was going to stay in for the rest of my life and really climb the ladder and, and excel. Um, those things didn't pan out. Uh, and like in the middle of all of that, it felt super disconcerting and, and disturbing, but um, I just kept kind of rising from the ashes and things keep getting better and better. And now I'm so glad I'm not with that high school, <laughs> high school and college boyfriend. And I'm with, um, you know, I have my awesome girlfriend and she's really, really supportive and amazing. And yeah, the magazine thing didn't work out and I missed parts of it, but I love, you know, being a full-time book author and I never would have um, been able to do travel writing for a few years if I had been full-time on a staff. So um, I'm not going to go with a trite, like things work out as they should, or everything happens for a reason. Um, I think that's, that's taking it a little too far, but, um, I think just, just clinging to these ideas of what, how my life is supposed to go, um, is, is a useless, is an exercise in frustration because none of it's going to pan out like you think young, young grasshopper, young Andy. Um, but it's all really going to work out just fine and, and even better than that, you know, wife of a doctor in Chicago that you thought you were going to be. Well, you know, Chicago is very, very cold in, in the wintertime. And it's, I was just there last week. It's very hot in the summertime. Very hot in summer. <laughs> I mean, much like, much like New York and Chicago still a great city. That was not a knock on Chicago by any stretch of the imagination, but <laughs> Uh, well, you know, what, as we wrap up here, I just just wanted to, to to mention one thing that I saw on your website. It looks like you have um, a, a coaching um, proposition that you're uh, um, inviting other authors to, uh, or sort of up and coming, um, you know, people who want to get interested or who are interested in in publishing. So, tell me a little bit more about uh, the, you know how that idea came to you for for uh, sort of the coaching side of of uh, of your life, and um, yeah. Yeah. So, um, I don't do developmental edits. I should say that from the start, cause I still get inquiries about, um, developmental edits. Um, a friend of mine, Leah Conan is an author who does amazing developmental edits. If anyone, I just send everyone to her. She's incredible. Uh, but there's lots of great developmental editors out there. Um, I just felt like realized I had all this knowledge and I was sort of, um, and all this advice and all this experience that I was just sort of sitting on, um, and didn't have any direct way to hand out. And so, um, yeah, I'm offering it. It's sort of like an hourly service. Um, I think for a lot of people, even an hour or two could be really beneficial. Um, it's sort of, my answer to, I unfortunately can't do the, like, can I, can I pick your brain kind of things? So this is, um, a, a hopefully a, um, compromise for people who really do want to invest in their future. Um, whether you want to understand more about freelance writing, writing for magazines, travel writing, or specifically writing and publishing, um, a book, uh, specifically traditional publishing, because I don't have a lot of knowledge about self-publishing. Uh, that's another area of what's the opposite of an area of expertise that sometimes people ask and I'm like, no, no, go find someone who knows that. Um, yeah. So there's information on my website and, um, 
yeah, it's just, I, if I can help people out one-on-one, that's, um, a cool, a cool part of my job. Um, and especially now that we can do everything virtually, um, I'm, I'm happy to share knowledge when I can for the right clients. Very cool. Well, t- tell us when, uh, we were never here will be released. We were never here comes out August 3rd, 2021. Uh, and it should be available in bookstores and pretty much everywhere books are sold as well as, um, you know, ebook, audio, all the regular spots, all the regular formats. So for the audiobook, do you do the voiceover for that or does someone else do that? I do not. We um, actually hired Becca Tobin, who is an incredible actress. Some people might know her from Glee. Uh, she reads the audiobook, and it was really fun because she had actually read an early version of it. We had a friend in common, um, and she had really she had already reached out to tell me she really enjoyed it. And so then we roped her into reading the audiobook. So it should be a very she's a wonderful actress, and it should be a really um, submersive experience listening to the audiobook version of this. Very cool. Well, Andy, thank you so much for taking some time to uh, to chat with us. This was fun. Yeah, this was super fun. Thank you so much for having me on. All right. And best of luck. Thank you. Well, 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 there you have it. My conversation with Andrea Bartz or Andy, as she's known by her friends, uh, her latest book, We Were Never Here, will be released on August 3rd. As you're listening to this, it should be out right now. And while you can buy it wherever books are sold, I ask that you please consider purchasing from either your local neighborhood bookstore or through bookshop.org, where a portion of the proceeds from each sale goes to supporting local bookstores. And I think that's important. Um, you know, local bookstores, we're, we're having a hard time, and, and small businesses, small retail businesses in, in general, we're having a hard time before the pandemic. Uh, now, of course, they could use all the support they can get. So please consider buying We Were Never Here at either your local independent bookstore or through bookshop.org. I don't know how they get a portion of every sale to go to a local bookstore, but I don't need to know. Uh, I just need to know that they do it and they do. And I think that's great. Now, listen, you might be sitting in your car or your office or the gym or maybe even your bathtub. And you might be wondering to yourself, where can I get more of these Uncorking a Story episodes? Well, I have some good news for you. You can go to wherever you get your podcasts, whether that's Apple or Google Play or Spotify or iHeartRadio. Even Amazon now has podcasts. Um, Go there, search and subscribe to Uncorking a Story. And while you're there, I've got another great idea for you. Please rate and review Uncorking a Story because that's a great way to show your support for all the hard work we're doing here. And it helps spread the word about all the great content we have uh, and uh, you know, makes it uh, a little bit uh, easier for other people to find it. So please uh, appreciate you doing that. And uh, hey, look, thanks for listening to this episode. If you liked it, and why wouldn't you? Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, please tell a friend. Um, now listen, my sales pitch for the, for the whole thing is over. Um, so I will end by saying, for all the hardworking women men and dogs. And yes, we do have two dogs on the payroll here at Uncorking a Story. This is Mike Carlin saying thank you for listening and until next time.